Are y'all ready to have some fun today? Because, I, look, there is nothing more fun than going over some touchy, controversial passages in the Bible that are sure to upset some people no matter what conclusion we come to. So I, I'm ready. This is fun to me. This type of stuff, digging into the Bible and some of these controversial areas, trying to do as much study as possible to come to a conclusion, this is fun. This is fun. I can't please everybody. It's impossible. But we're going to be looking at a very important question. And this is important, especially in our political climate today, where governing authorities put forward laws and demands on the people. And those people or the body of Christ may disagree on some of those things. And so the question that we're going to be asking today that is sure to just be a fun time, it is going to be a blast, is should we obey our government? Or more personally, should you obey your government? And I'm referring not just to the government in America. I'm referring to all governments in any country that you may be listening to, in any state or province that you may be in right now. I'm talking about all governments for all time in all places. Should you obey your government? How should we react when governments implement mandates or laws or social structures, or tax plans, or economic packages that we may not like. How are we, as Christians, supposed to respond? And luckily for us, Paul, in his day, in his time, recognized these potential issues, and he addressed them to the Roman people. So we're hopping into chapter 13. We just finished up chapter 12. Last week, we are hopping into chapter 13, and, and this chapter is one of those that, like I said, it is, it's sure to stir up some controversy, but I want to honor what Paul said and what the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul to the very best of my ability. So like we do, we're going to read through the verses that we're going over today, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to break them down verse by verse. So I'm reading from the ESV for part of this, in verses 3 through 4, I'm reading through the NLT when we do our breakdown, and you'll see why a little bit later. It's just easier to understand kind of what Paul's saying. But let's read through this, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, there's a lot of stuff there. 
We're going to break this down. Let's start with verse 1 because there's some things that we need to lay a foundation for to start with. Verse 1, once again, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So before we address the riveting questions that we asked a little bit before, we need to first understand the nature of authority. True authority, actual authority, does not come from our own power or ability to assert our dominance. It does not come because a certain group of people decided to let someone lead or because they decided to vote someone in. True authority comes from God. It's founded in God. And without that authority being given by God himself, then the quote-unquote authority that someone may claim has no power. So authority comes from God. This is similar to what we broke down uh, in the last chapter, in chapter 12, in verse 3, when Paul says, hey, don't think highly of yourself, but think with sober judgment, because the gifts that you have come from God. Nothing that you have is of your own making or doing. It comes from God, and the same goes with authority. And this is important for us to understand. It's important to understand that God is the one who gives or allows some amongst the collective to have authority. God is that foundation. And one distinction to make is that this does not mean that because God gives governing bodies or governing leaders authority, it doesn't mean that they're always going to use it correctly. And it doesn't mean that God is going to always approve of how they use that authority. One instance, in the very first book of the Bible, God gave mankind authority over the earth. He tells them in Genesis chapter 1 to subdue and rule the earth. He even gave Adam the authority to name the animals. And with this authority that God so graciously gave to mankind, humanity abused it. And we know the rest is history. You can think back to Pharaoh in Exodus. He was the governing authority. And according to Paul, his governing authority was given by God. God allowed him to have that governing authority. And we see that he used his authority to wrongfully enslave and kill Israelites. He abused it. But what cannot be missed is, is this. Although at a bird's eye view, Christians are called to be subject to governing authorities, we can't forget that the governing authorities are subject to God and to God's judgment and to God's authority. When mankind abused their authority in the garden, they were justly punished by God. When Pharaoh misused his authority against Israel and called to have all the Hebrew-born babies murdered and to enslave Israel, when he abused his authority, he was justly punished by God. But what's also interesting about Pharaoh's punishment in particular and the punishments against other governing authorities throughout Israel's history that we see in the Old Testament is that God used his people many times to enact the justice that God is, is laying forth. 
Now, I want to break this down. I am not saying that Christians, when they feel that something is unjust, have the right to wage war against their governments. That's not the message of these narratives. What is the message is that God, having the ultimate authority, can command justice, and it can that justice can be played out through the hands of his people. And what this circles back to is the fact that these authorities only have their authority because of God. And when God decides to redact that authority, they are left to be subjected to judgment. So laying the foundation, first and foremost, the governing authorities, civil governments, and things of the like, they have their authority from God. That's what Paul tells us. Now, verse 2, this this is where the fun begins. If you're waiting for the fun and, and this leading up to this, you didn't think that this was fun, get ready. Get ready for get ready for this roller coaster. We're about to have some fun. Verse two. Once again, he says, "Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment." So this is where some of us may get uncomfortable. And if, if I'm being honest, when I would read through this a few years ago and beyond, um, it it made me very uncomfortable. Whoa, Paul, you're you're telling me that if I resist the authorities, no matter what, that I'm going to be judged because of that? Like the we know throughout history, uh governing authorities have asked their citizens to do very, very bad things. And depending on your interpretation of this, depending on your tradition, depending on your view of your government and of this verse, um you may come to different conclusions. Because for some people, for the most part, let's say America, for instance, for the most part, our government is good. For the most part. They're not tyrannical. You're going to have people who may argue certain things, but for the most part, we have a pretty free society. And the government, for the most part, in general, does what is good. But there may be others in different countries listening to this right now where you say, but Dante, my government is evil and tyrannical, and they're persecuting Christians, and the laws that we have say that if we worship Jesus, that we're going to get thrown in jail, and when we look at things like this, I think this is where the divide comes amongst believers. When we look at something like Romans 13 and the various interpretations that follow, and there's really two popular interpretations of this, kind of two camps. And I'm overgeneralizing, but it'll help us get the point. The the first camp would say that you are always to obey the government no matter what. They will look at what Paul says with wooden literalism, and they'll say, yo, Paul said whoever resists the authorities, no matter what, resists what God has appointed, and that's that's a bad deal. And then you'll have a, a second camp that would say that this is just a general rule. Paul is giving a general rule to the church in Rome on how, in general, they need to be behaving towards their government. But that does not apply to any and all things. And it does not give the government's unlimited authority to demand whatever they see fit. And honestly, I am going to side with the second camp, that last interpretation, and here's why. 
And for those of you who are new to Bible study, or those of you who are constantly in Bible study, and you're always trying to work through some of these difficult passages, there there are principles when it comes to reading the Bible and coming to an interpretation that should always be applied. And that is the principle of taking the Bible as a whole, not just reading a particular verse or a particular chapter in a vacuum and interpreting it based off of what you can see from that one verse or that one chapter. All of Scripture is God-breathed. As Paul tells Timothy in his letter, he says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired by God. All of it can be used for reproof, for correction, for teaching, and for instruction. So with that being said, any Scripture that you're reading when you're trying to understand it cannot and should not be read in a vacuum. You cannot just read one verse and say, this is what it means without consulting and looking at all the other scriptures that speak to that same subject. So with that in mind, when it comes to this idea of resisting the authorities and obeying the governing authorities that God has put in place, if we read this in a vacuum, then there's only one conclusion that we can come to. And that is that, yes, you must always obey what the governments say no matter what. But if we are reading this the correct way and we are taking in all of Scripture, all of God's Word that we can to help us interpret and understand what Paul is saying, we're going to find a few examples in Scripture that actually point us in a different direction. So to start, we need to point out that there are three main bodies of governance in Scripture. You have the family government, you have the church government, and you have the civil government. The, the functions and the structures in which a certain subset of societies are governed. You have the family, the church, and civil. And throughout two of these, at least, the family and the church, we understand that the authority given within those structures, that they're not unlimited. They have limits and exceptions to their authority. For example, if we look at the family governance, the most well-known verses when it comes to children in relationship with their parents is obey your parents. We see this in Ephesians 6. Paul says this in verse 1. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we would all agree that the authority that is given to parents is not unlimited. Even though Paul says, hey, children, obey your parents in the Lord, and if we take that to be literally in a vacuum, then we would have to say, okay, we have to obey our parents no matter what they say. But we would all agree that if a parent asks a child to go to the gas station and steal from the gas station— because he knows that if a child gets caught stealing, they'll just get a slap on the wrist opposed to the parent stealing who could potentially get fined or go to jail. We would agree that, no, the child should not obey their parent. That's a sin. He's asking the child to sin, and the parent knows it. Or, here's another one. If a parent tells their, ch their child or their teenager to quit worshiping Jesus, 
They say, you've been going to church too much. We don't like this Jesus character. You need to quit worshiping Jesus completely. We would all agree that the child should disobey. We understand when looking at these scenarios that the authority that parents are given in the command for the children to obey them cannot be unlimited without exception. We would all agree that that should be the case. And commands like these are assuming that the parents are directing the child in good faith. That's why Paul says in verse 4, he says, Fathers, bring up your children in discipline and instruction of the Lord. If, If the children are expected to obey the parents, the parents are expected to be worthy of being obeyed. They're expected to be a Christ-like figure who is going to lead their children to do good and moral things and not call them to do immoral, sinful actions. Another example would be church governance. In Hebrews 13, verses 17, they say this, Obey your spiritual leaders. Do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Now, if this was to be taken as wooden literalism, read in a vacuum, then that means that if you're in a church, you have to always, always obey your spiritual leaders, no matter what they tell you to do. It does not matter how good or bad it is, you must always obey. But as we can see, the command to obey our spiritual leaders, if we look back a little bit earlier in Hebrews chapter 13, is in reference to the type of leaders that they are. In verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13, it says this, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. So this command to obey your spiritual leaders does not give unlimited authority to leaders in the church because this assumes that the leaders are like those in verse 7 who are teaching the word of God and who have a faith that is worth emulating. One scenario would be if a church leader asks you to preach a false doctrine in order to convince the congregation to give more money. We would all agree that we should not obey that leader. We would all agree that that leader is is calling you to do something sinful. And the same principles apply to silver governance. Paul does not give the command to not resist governing authorities arbitrarily. He lays out the purpose of the authority that God gives these governments. Look at verses 3 through 4. I'm reading this from the NLT translation because it it just lays it out in a way that's easier to understand. Paul is laying out the purpose of government and why God gives them authority. Look at this in verse 3. He says, For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right. But in those who are doing wrong, would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So the purpose of the governing authority, as Paul says, is to honor those who do good, and punish those who do bad. Now, last week, we elaborated on what is meant when Paul talks about good. What does it mean by doing good? 
Well, in Paul's letter, we talked about this, and I'm convinced that it is referring to the good of God's nature revealed in Jesus and his word. Because otherwise, if it wasn't rooted in God, if good was not rooted in God, in God's word and in God's will, otherwise the good would just be subject to whoever decides their own morality. Good would change from culture to culture and from generation to generation. And what Paul thinks is good now, we would call bad if, in fact, good simply just means whatever society at whatever time deems what is good. So that's why it's important to understand that the good that Paul is talking about is God's nature that is revealed in Jesus Christ and through his word. It is founded in God. So the authority that God appoints to these governing bodies ideally would be seen in the action that honors those who do good, who follow God's will, and punish those who do bad, who defy God's will. And under this system, I think we would all say, yes, amen, let's do it. <laughs> like, yeah, we will, we will obey these governing authorities. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world, and people abuse and misuse the authority that God gives them. So with this in mind, I think it's clear that if a governing authority asks its citizens to do the opposite of God's will, or the opposite of God's word, or the opposite of the teachings of Jesus, I think it's clear that we should not obey. Now, before before you start saying, oh man, Dante, you, 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 seems like you're contradicting what Paul is saying, let me give you some few examples. We already gave you the examples in family governance and in church governance, but let me give you some examples in Scripture that clearly show God's people that God loves and that God ends up rewarding. Here's some examples of these people openly defying the governing authorities, and it was seen as good in God's eyes. The first one, one of the most popular ones, is found in the first chapter of Exodus. And we're going to read through verses 15 through 21. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the governing authority in Exodus at this time was Pharaoh. And he clearly ordered the midwives to kill any Hebrew newborns. If Paul's command to never resist governing authorities was to be taken as universal, no matter what, then the midwives would be violating God's institution, and it would be contradicting what Paul is saying. But we know that this is not the case because of God's reaction in verse 20. It says that God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Not only that, look at verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God blessed the midwives for following his good nature. They saved lives and they avoided murder. God blessed them because they chose to defy the king's command of murder. Another example would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
I think this is one that most of us are familiar with. We find this in Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 28. Nebuchadnezzar says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And after that, as we read, he threw them in the fire. (laughs) They openly defied the commands and the law of the governing authority. And he tossed them into a blazing furnace. And we know the story. They were fine. He tossed three in there. He said, yo, there's four people in there now. And as the narrative points us to, it was the angel of God with them. It was God with them. He was there with them in the fire. And in verse 28, look at what happens. The Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. So not only did they disobey the king's command, but they were open about it. They told him, nah, (laughs) we're not going to do what you ask us. You're the governing authority, but we're not going to do what you ask us. They resisted, and they did so because it violated God's law of worshiping and having other gods. And clearly, God supported this decision because he saved them. He was with them in the fire and saved them, and it even led to the king giving praise to Yahweh. Another example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23, they say, It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Not only is this a verse that shows that it was by faith that Moses' parents disobeyed, the governing authority. But this verse is put in the hall of fame of faith. Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith. You have all these faith examples throughout Hebrews 11 that recall all these amazing faith examples throughout the Old Testament. And one of those, in fact, is the faith that the parents of Moses had to defy the governing authority, to resist the governing authority's command in order to do what was right in the eyes of God. They trusted God, and they disobeyed the king's command to kill all newborn Hebrew boys. Next example, fourth one, Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 29. These are the the apostles, and the Jewish leaders, the governing authorities, had told them, hey, uh, don't talk about Jesus no more. Like, we're we're not having this. Quit talking and preaching about Jesus. And look what happens in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Yet again, a governing authority gives a command, and the defiance of that command in order to honor God's word And his will takes precedence over that command. Even the apostles 
completely resisted and disobeyed the governing authorities. Why? Because it went against God's will and God's word. Next example. And in, in this one even has God commanding disobedience to governing authorities. It's God that is having people disobey the governing authorities. And we find this in Matthew chapter 2 with the birth of, with the birth of Jesus. And what we see is when Jesus was born, Herod, King Herod, had heard that the king of, Je- of the Jews was born. And he was wanting to find him so he can have Jesus killed. But he tries to be sly about it. Look what it says in verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. Now we all know Herod did not want to worship Jesus. He wanted to find him and kill him. And so they went. They went on. They saw Mary and Jesus. They worshiped him. And before they went back to the king, look at what happens in verse 12. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So in this instance, God himself instructs them to disobey the commands and the authority of King Herod in order to preserve life, in order to be in accordance with God's will and with God's word. Last example, this is Paul himself resisting the governing authorities. If if any of these examples so far hasn't convinced you that we cannot read scripture in a vacuum and that the command that Paul was giving is supposed to be taken in a general sense and not universal for any and all things, look at what Paul does. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32 through 33, he says this. He says, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was lit down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Paul himself knew that the governing authority wished to have him seized, wished to capture him. And he resisted it by escaping and running. So if Romans 13 means that we are supposed to always submit to every single law and command and authority of the government, and that they have unlimited authority over the people, then these six examples that I just laid before you are in contradiction to what Paul is writing. But fortunately for for our sakes, it seems clear that Paul is not trying to say that we always have to obey the governing authorities no matter what, no questions asked. It seems clear that Paul is giving general advice that speaks to the role of civil governments and how Christians in general should act towards them. Because let's remember the function of government explained by Paul. Remember, he said that the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course, you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servant sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So with this in mind, we can see many areas where governments may succeed and even fail in doing the purpose that is laid out before them. But look, most governments have laws against murder, sexual assault, thief, or theft, violence, and, and these things 
should be fully followed since they are enforcing a standard outlined by God. If you are breaking these laws, as a Christian, you should not resist the authority of the government to enact punishment on you for resisting these types of laws. But if governments have laws that require you to murder, that require you to steal and cheat and abuse or harm others, these orders should not be followed since they go against God's commands. And even further, if the governments put laws in place that order you to reject the gospel and reject Jesus and to preach a false gospel, you should resist those as well, just like the apostles did in Acts chapter 5. These laws and any others like them would be going against the proposed function of government that Paul lays out, which is to honor those who do right. And once again, right and wrong and good and bad is not dictated by what we feel is good and bad. It is dictated by God's moral standard. Otherwise, the good and bad would be purely subjective to the individual, and there would be no possible way that we could ever actually function in the in the ideal state that Paul is trying to lay out for us. So if the government is requiring its citizens to follow what is good and abstain from what is bad through the standard of God, then Paul fully expects Christians to submit to the governing authority. And if you don't, you will be judged. It is a sin if you do not. Look at what Barnes says in his commentary on Romans. He says, There were cases where it was right to resist the laws. This the Christian religion clearly taught, and in cases like these, it was indispensable for Christians to take a stand. When the laws interfered with the rights of conscience, when they commanded the worship of idols or any moral wrong, then it was their duty to refuse submission. Yet in what cases this was to be done, where the line was to be drawn, was a question of deep importance, and one which is not easily settled. It is quite probable, however, that the main danger was that the early Christians would err in refusing submission, even when it was proper, rather than in undue conformity to idolatrous rites and ceremonies. One thing I want to point out, too, is he points out that certain things should be resisted if the laws interfere with the rights of conscience when they command the worship of idols or any moral wrong. What stands out to me is the rights of conscience. We're told that if we go against our conscience, then it is a sin. That if we if we go against something that we believe is wrong, something that is more ambiguous when it comes to the Bible, because there are very clear things that are right and wrong in God's word, but there are situations um, throughout certain cultures that you will be faced with that there may not be a clear, cold, cut answer in scripture. So there will be things that will be on people's conscience. And next, in the next few episodes, we'll get into Romans chapter 14. And this is a huge passage that talks about the conscience of people within the church and that certain things for certain people go against their conscience. And if it does, then it's a sin. If you go against something that you believe to be wrong, 
then it's a sin. Paul in Romans 14 is dealing with um, some problems about food. Some people believe that certain things are okay to eat, and others believe that they are unclean and that they would be sinning if they eat it. And Paul comes out and says, like, you know, hey, there's really nothing wrong with eating anything because all food is from God. But if you believe that something is wrong for you to eat, then don't eat it. Don't eat it. Look at verse 23 in Romans 14. Paul says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I wonder what the New Living Translation has this as. Oh, this is good. Verse 23 again in the New Living Translation says, But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it, for you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So this idea of us having a conscience, which God gave us, and there are certain things that are right and wrong for certain people. And for for us, we may think, well, how on earth does this work? And one good example would be um, the idea of, let's say, drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol. For one person, just having one drink one innocent drink at dinner, you know, maybe it's one drink, you haven't had a drink all year long, and you have one drink, for that one person, it may not be a sin because they have no problem with alcohol. So they would just have one drink, they wouldn't be tempted to have any more, and they would go on with their life. But for another person, let's say someone who has had a drinking problem, and it really messed up their life, and they knew in their conscience that, man, if I have this one drink, I'm probably going to spiral and I'm probably going to get into something I don't want to do. For that person, since it goes against their conscience and they're doubting whether or not it's a good idea, for them, that would be a sin. And, th- and this whole idea of violating our conscience as being a sin is an entirely different episode, but these, these laws that governments may implement, the ones that we know are obvious are those that go against God's moral law, those that tell us to worship certain idols, those we can all clearly say, yes, that is immoral. It goes against the will of God and we should not do it. But there's also those laws that violate the conscience of certain people. And it seems as though if Paul's saying that it's a sin to go against your conscience, it seems as though that that same principle could be applied to the, the governing authorities. That's something I'm going to need to flesh out more. It's also important. I want to point out something, too, in this commentary that Barnes wrote. It's important to not forget the sentiment that he expressed at the end. And he expressed the sentiment of the main danger at this time is that early Christians would lean more towards the side of completely refusing to submit to governing authorities. And so this is why Paul gives this general command that's like, no, governing authorities, for the most part, they bring good. They bring structure and safety to their people. And so in general, yes, you you should submit. Not in every single case, but in general, you should definitely submit. And so this means that this command, it still definitely applies. It still definitely applies. And look, I'm always hesitant to bring up these various exceptions or to show that certain things aren't universal and literal 
Because with anything like this, there's always going to be people who ha- who take these exceptions I've laid out and they will abuse them. They'll cross the line. They will take them too far to where they resist these governing authorities in everything far past what is actually called upon by God. And, and that's a problem. That's a problem that we should be aware of. There will be those who claim that any particular law that they don't like should be resisted, and they will use God as their reason. And when in reality, in most instances, that law should be followed. But nevertheless, the governing authority, like Paul said, is there for a reason to honor the good and punish the bad. And as Christians, we are called to follow this. We are called to obey in those instances. When we remember the context that Paul is writing in, at least to me, it seems more apparent why this is true. We have to remember, Paul is writing to a small Jesus movement that is based in a pagan city and a pagan society in Rome. Even in a society where the governing authority, the Caesar, he's looked at as being a god. He's looked at as divine. So Paul's writing in very interesting circumstances. And the Caesar at the time was Nero. And for those of you who may know some church history, Nero was a very, very bad dude. Insane dude. Very, very bad. And when we know how he treated and viewed Christians, at least for me, it really adds weight to what Paul is commanding the Roman people to do in this chapter. I want to read you some excerpts regarding Nero and his and, and how he governed Christians. Um, and I get this from the thechristiancourier.com. They say this, the Neronian persecution was vicious indeed. And Tacitus, who lived from AD 60 to 120, was a Roman historian. He preserved a record of this situation. And we get this quote from his Annals XV 44. And this is what Tacitus says in regard to Nero and the Christians. He says, And so, to get rid of this rumor, Nero set up, or falsely accused, as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations who are commonly called Christians. Christus, or Christos in Greek, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Check for a moment. This pernicious superstition again broke out, not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. Then, on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of their hatred for the human race. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. He's talking about Christians here. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Are are y'all hearing this? This is what Nero did to the Christians. Not only did he put them to death, but he used them as objects of amusement. They were clothed in hides of beasts and he, he allowed dogs to tear them to death. He crucified them. He set others on fire so they could illuminate the night when daylight failed. Mm. 
He continues, Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of charioteer or drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity, even towards men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment, for it was felt that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. Oh my goodness. This is what Nero ultimately did to the Christians in Rome. And this is the same guy who is in charge when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. They continue on. They say, when Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, he said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He points out that civil governments, generally speaking, is for the ordering and protection of society. Laws directed to that end ought to be obeyed. And similarly, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. They say these passages are subtle indicators of the inspired nature of the New Testament. Men who were writing under ordinary human impulses would hardly have encouraged brethren to honor and obey someone as vile as Nero. But Christians are to be good citizens, regardless of the character of their leaders. End quote. So Paul, who is writing with the knowledge of this insane, literally insane leader, still calls Christians to be good citizens. And that requires them to obey the, the laws and the orders that are geared towards protecting in ordering society. We are not called to upheave governments and rise up in anarchy. That we leave to the wrath of God, but we are ordered to be good citizens in general. All right, we're going to go through verses five through seven because boy, this is a long one today. We're going to go through these real quick and we'll give some more time to them next episode. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Like I said, much can be said on this, and we will get into this um, section next episode. But God expects us, once again, to be good citizens. And in this instance, he expects us to pay our taxes, to show honor and respect where it is due. And ultimately, government in its ideal form is an extension of God's authority that is supposed to reward the good and punish the bad. They are supposed to protect life and preserve its people. But I think as we have laid out in this episode, we are not called to give governments unlimited authority and power, and we are not called to obey government if it goes against our conscience and if it goes against the will and the morality that God has placed in his word. I will catch y'all next week.